Welcome to the Pivot Cast. This episode was recorded on January 30th, 2019 at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Nazba Tom, Aaron Kreuter, and Francis Boyle. Just so you know, this episode contains a bit of strong language. Listener's discretion is advised. Tonight, we're really excited to have three fantastic readers um, with us. Francis Boyle, we can clap. Yes. <laughs> Aaron Kreuter. Yes. And Nazba Tom. Yeah. Okay, first up, Francis Boyle, who is the author of one previous book the poetry collection, Light Carved Passages, as well as a chapbook, which won the Tree Reading Series Chapbook Contest. Her writing has also received the Diana Brebner Prize and awards in the Great Canadian Literary Hunt. She's publish, published work in literary magazines throughout Canada and the United States, as well as in anthologies with themes as varied as the films of Alfred Hitchcock and form poetry. Raised on the Canadian prairies, Frances lived on the West Coast for 12 years and now makes her home in Ottawa with a partner, Tim Stanley. They have two grown daughters and a large standard poodle who believes he is a lapdog. Welcome, Frances Boyle, to the mic, please. She's going to read from Tower, I think. Tell them about it. Thank you, Kinesia. Thank you, everybody, for being here on this frigid evening. Yes, I am indeed going to be reading from my novella, Tower, which came out last June from Fish Got a Swim Editions, uh, a um, transnational uh, publication specializing in novellas. Um, so I'm going to read from Tower, uh, and I'm going to skip around through it uh, a little bit to give you a flavor of the, the three, uh, three principal characters in it. So I'll start, uh, start with Arliss. Um, Arliss... Um, um, is uh, a quilt maker and market gardener, somewhat isolated, living on her own in um, a, a Gulf island that I've made up. Um, and uh, she's, um, just by the point in the story that I'm going to read, she's um, made uh, uh, some, some friends w with uh, a young woman, young pregnant woman who's moved in down the road with her rather sketchy partner. Friendship is cooled because uh, some you know, concerns that things have gone missing around her place. And uh, when Arliss has gotten back from a weekend on, in the city, she comes home and in the middle of the night um, opens the door to find out that Bill is out there stealing vegetables. He stared at me, swaying a little. His mouth made small movements, but no words came out. I stared back at the thieving bastard, equally dumb. It was him who finally broke the silence in a choked voice. Am. She's all messed up. She won't eat anything except this shit. I shook my head. I was awake, no doubt, but felt sleep muddled. It was a struggle to get my thoughts to line up. Couldn't you have asked me? It's not like I've been exactly stingy. He stayed silent, glassy-eyed and weaving in the light. Whatever he was on, it was hopeless to try and talk sense. Well, what goes around comes around, I said, and it'll come around for you two pretty quick. I turned and started to close the door. Wait. I waited. We can make, out, make it up to you, pay you back. 
Must have scared him. I'd meant things would come around in kind of a karmic sense. But his voice, scratchy and breaking, suggested he thought I intended more human retribution. I felt sorry for him for a moment, and then he showed his spiky cracked teeth, gripped in a nervous grin. I flashed on the missing quilt in Emma's hands, all the meals I'd shared with her, and how I'd begun to think we were something like friends. It was all almost funny. I couldn't help myself. I started to laugh. Go ahead, I said, gripping tight on the porch railing. Help yourself. Take everything I've got. You can pay me back in eggs. Wait. Uh, I know. I needed to stop myself. They had one thing I really wanted. I bent over, laughing at the terrible joke I almost made. But when I stood up, my cheeks were slick and cool with tears. Bill had slipped down the driveway to the road, moving through shadows. He hadn't put down any of what he'd stolen from the garden. I didn't see Bill again, and Emma disappeared too. No more than two weeks after, in the middle of the night, my house was filled with the lights and sound of an RCMP cruiser speeding down the road. Bill and Emma had taken off before the cops reached their place. There must have been more to the story, but I didn't care about that. What I cared about was what they had left behind. The night the Mounties came, my sleep had already been disturbed by a small but insistent wail coming from the garden below my bedroom window. There was a baby in my cabbage patch. Carefully, hardly letting myself exhale, I picked the tiny thing up, brushing the dirt off the stolen quilt. I wrapped the child closer in it, despite the warmth of the night, and carried my bundle inside. The diapers they'd dumped along with the baby were way too big, and there wasn't much left in the tin of formula. But I jury-rigged a jar for a baby bottle, pushing a hole with a darning needle through the fingertip of some new rubber gloves to make a nipple, and managed to get her fed and changed. I rocked the little girl, pacing, wondering, daring to hope. My first thought was that they'd only park the child with me. I couldn't imagine that even Emma would willingly ditch her baby for good. But it was pretty clear that Emma wouldn't be back to claim the infant anytime soon. My instinct was to try and pass her off on my own. But I played nice and called child services, though I did postpone the call until as late the next afternoon as I could justify. I had to hand her over to be processed and assessed as though she really was a cabbage. It felt like someone had taken the secateurs and lopped off some new growth that had unexpectedly sprouted in me, even though I'd had her for less than two days. But I followed all the procedures, filled out all the forms, and talked to a department's worth of social workers before I was first approved for foster care and eventually adoption. While I waited to get her back, I filled time poring over my gardening books, ordering new catalogs. I found myself lingering over flowers, old roses of all things, and I ordered one of the climbing varieties to plant beneath the window of the room where my girl would sleep. In my temporary bloom-addled state, I thought of calling the baby Rose, but I needed a name for my child that would bind her to my place, to what grows here and to what had brought her to me, to things that I loved and the way I loved her already. My land and my garden was full of chicory in all its forms, a flower name, indeed, for those blue stars that dot my fallow fields and nod on tall stems, but also for the greens that are the heart of my salad garden in their whites and pale yellows, the bright greens and deep maroons, their bite and texture. Bill's Hall for Emma must have had four or five varieties, crisp, peppery, succulent, and I named my daughter Chicory.
So next, uh, introduce um, another character who, at this point in the story, is uh, is a young boy. Um, doesn't need any setup. The thermos looks intact, but Franklin Oliver hears the telltale tinkle as he picks it up and shakes it gingerly. Yes, broken glass chimes inside the light metal shell. He places the useless thermos inside his backpack that sits on the ground. His lunch kit was drop-kicked by Colin Page, the most unrelenting of the grade six kids who pick on him. Franklin retrieves his sandwich, now flattened to a scared-looking white face in a Ziploc, leaves the remains of an apple where it is lodged in the chain link of the schoolyard fence. He finds the Tupperware container by following a trail of grapes, but gives up looking for its blue plastic lid after a few fruitless ha moments. He thinks that ha, and his mouth twitches with a smile at his own little pun as he stuffs his things into the pack. What are you grinning for, Oliver? It's Colin, back with a couple of the other boys, a grade six girl smirking behind them. Egg, Oliver, you retard. Colin puts his two hands on Franklin's arms. Arm grips and twists in opposite directions so the skin burns, then releases him. One another twist, Oliver? Some sudden awareness seems to pass over Colin's face. Hey, remember that show the grade eights and sevens did last year? The musical? Oliver, right? Oliver, twist? That's you, isn't it? Twist? Colin gives Franklin's arm another snake bite as he says the name. Yeah, sure, whatever. Franklin averts his gaze, smooths the air with his hands for affirmation. The bell rings and kids line up to go into school, saved by the ha. So the next bit is back with back on this um, uh, created Gulf Island called Perez Island. Uh, time has passed. Uh, Chicory, the daughter that uh, Arliss has adopted, is now almost 15. She's just gotten back from a bit of a misadventure, some bad choices that her mother had to bail her out of. Chicory stomps up the stairs to her bedroom. She doesn't want Arliss to see the tears threatening to swamp her. Her first impulse, slam the door, lock Arliss out. But she tells herself she won't give her the satisfaction. Instead, she closes it softly, so she can just hear the latch click and catch. It feels weird to see her bed, the posters, all her things looking suddenly strange. The first night in a way and as long as she can remember, and now her clothes, wrinkled and unfresh smelling, Remind her that she'd slept in them, tossing and turning on an apartment floor, barraged by city noises. Now the horseshoe-shaped barbell in her nose shifts as she breathes, and she feels the bead on each end rest heavily above her lip. Her hair clings to her head, a rat's nest. She can feel tears leaking from her eyes as she realizes how badly she's screwed up. Through the churn of feelings, an exhilaration rises in her, stronger almost than the exhaustion and the unwelcome shame and fear. She has actually done something. She'd been brave enough to defy Arliss. She looks through her window over the garden in the poplar windbreak. Starlings whistle and click raucously among leaves daubed with thin autumn morning sun. She hears the chickadee that Arliss always used to tell her was calling, Chickaree! She shakes her head angry again, trying to dislodge the recollection. Outside, the woody old briar rose holds up the house. The flowers, blasted with an early frost, are blousy with a decayed sweet scent. Arliss also always tells her how she planted the rose bush just after Chicory was born, before Arliss got to bring her home. Chicory shoves that memory away as well. The house is infested, she thinks, infested with Arliss's stories and things Chicory is supposed to be grateful for. 
She opens the window to lean out, shakes the trellis, shakes it again. It holds firm, and she imagines making a break for it. Despite the thorns, she could climb down, or she could walk out the front door. Chicory thinks again about the two girls and the drugged-out guy who talked to them on the pedestrian mall in Victoria. Their eyes so vacant, she was spooked. But now she is somehow intrigued. She wonders if being part of the scene on the streets might not be so bad, if it could even be kind of cool once you get used to it. She moves to touch her swollen nose, and a thorn snags a tangle of red hair and pulls. Wincing, she closes the window. She knows it won't be long before Arliss comes to her. Sure enough, there's a heavy step on the stair. I'm not waiting for an engraved invitation. Chicory hears Arliss turn the knob, open the door, and come in. Arliss puts her hands on Chicory's shoulders and steers her to sit on the bed. She sits down as well, engulfs the girl's hands, hand in her own. Chicory doesn't move the hand, but keeps her face turned away. After several silent minutes, Arliss lets Chicory's hand go. She picks up the hairbrush and comb. Chicory braces herself, not quite believing that no recriminations or sarcasm are coming out of Arliss's mouth. Her mother is doing what she always used to do when Chicory was younger. Whenever Chicory would sit still long enough, Arliss would work slowly through all the tangles and knots. Gently taking her time, she would brush the hair smooth and coppery shiny. Chicory tries not to breathe or to lean into the brushing. She feels her neck and shoulders tighten with the effort of holding still. The brush goes through her hair, lightly grazing her scalp, touches her collar. She anticipates the moment when Arliss will finish brushing and shift the mass of red hair to Chicory's back, easing the sides behind her ears. She imagines the tugs as Arliss tightens, strand over strand over strand. She can already feel the, feel the thud of the braid as a thick knotted rope against the knobby bones down her back, the pull of the sectioned hair at her nape and temples how she'll have to blink hard so that more tears won't prickle her tired eyes. And in the last uh, the last bit, more time has passed. The young boy from the uh, dropkick lunch, lunch uh, kit is now uh, a, a man, uh, having made much worse choices than Chicory and suffered some pretty severe consequences for some of them. And um, Chicory is now in Victoria at art school, and uh, this section's in, in his voice. Eyes. Felt them boring into my shoulders that were stiff right up to my goddamn ears. I tried to sweep color wide across the smooth cement sides of the planter box, catch the rush that rode me. Instead, I knocked over my pot of chalk. The sticks went sprawling, rolling down the pavement, and me thrown at wheelchair height too far to stretch. I held the black chalk in my hand, finished shadowing over the fleshy green of the vine where it wound into the grave, and looked back to where I felt the eyes coming from. A tourist, I thought, a kid. I'd seen her sitting there before once or twice. Jailbait, weekend punk at suburban high school, curled up in herself against the April chill. Eyes like a cat, but no alley cat, this one. Skinny, but not street skinny, I knew by her eyes. Man, I know the other kind, flat and wary. This little chick had the look, black leather and pierced, but she didn't have the eyes. I made her jump when I yelled, you, help me pick this crap up. This isn't a goddamn free show. If you want to watch me draw, toss in some coin or else make yourself useful. She scrambled over, picked up chalk, dropped a few while she was at it. Rattled, but not scared off, at least not yet. Good. There are possibilities here. Your stuff's pretty awesome, but can I ask you something? 
The gravelly voice didn't fit with her kid frame. I shrugged a yes and took another look. Skinny yabba, maybe more like 20 than 16. Carroty hair in short bunches with one long rat tail of a braid hanging down. Metal glints from piercings in nose, eyebrow, lip. Little mouth all twisty, chin jutting up, hanging on hard, so as not to be thrown by the torque ride I was giving her. She wanted to know where I got my materials. Oh yeah, sure, like I'm Van Gogh. These are street drawings, girl, not the stuff you put in some gallery. I draw a few pictures, score a few tips. The rain comes and I start over from square goddamn one. I don't know about fancy-ass materials. I use whatever chalk I can get my hands on, okay? She rolled a few sticks in one hand as she passed them over, looking straight at me now. Come on, give me a break. Umber, black, celadon, those colors don't come standard, even in pastel chalks. This is high-end stuff, not kitty chalk. Busted. I took the chalk and turned a half-turn, jerked the chair so that her hand dropped off the back. Yeah, so what do you know about it? Turned out she wasn't some know-nothing kid. She was at art school, but had the decency to be embarrassed about it. Asked a couple of questions about coverage, durability, but didn't do overdo it with artsy crap. So the next time she came around, I let her buy me a beer or four. Then I ordered a couple of chasers. I told her what I thought about the artist establishment, about bullshit artist statements and high concept magazines, how galleries manipulated reputations for their own good, that they weren't there for artists, how playing their game was the worst kind of stupid. This is her to me, leaning over the table in the pub, fingers knotted, knitted through cuffs that stuck out of the sleeves of her beat-up leather jacket, holding the glass in both hands, looking at me through narrowed eyes. I love it how angry you are. I pushed back the table, laughed. Angry? Nah. Anger is like pounding your fist on the table. What I've got going is rage, babe. It's purer than anger. anger. It's precise, like a scalpel. You gotta know how to wield it. I flexed my arm so she could test how strong wheeling the chair had made it. She squeezed my bicep, and I had to stifle a fool's grin when her hand lingered. I liked her touch, and she had a sweet little body. Nobody this fine had been interested in cozying up with me and my chair for a while. Not since the days when it was a money machine, cash from the insurance settlement flowing off it. So, at last call when she said she'd better go, and didn't blink when I said I'd better go with her, I was pretty sure I'd lucked out, big time. Thank you. Next up, we have Aaron Kreuter. Aaron is the author of the poetry collection, which has the most fabulous title, Arguments for Lawn Chairs, and the short story collection, You and Me Belonging. It came out this past fall. He teaches and dissertates at York University. Welcome. Aaron Crater, who lives in Toronto. Thanks, Tanisha. Uh, thanks for coming out. The cold, so forth and so on. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to read uh, two small sections from my short story collection, You and Me Belonging, and uh, perhaps a poem or two. <laughs> so the first section I'm going to read is from the short story uh, AV. It's the second longest story in the collection and uh, it's basically about a 30-something man named Mark in Toronto who uh, who's worked his entire adult life uh, setting up the room and doing like sound and lighting and DJing for uh, uh, weddings and corporate events and bar mitzvahs and things like that and pretty much he becomes obsessed with the Holocaust and what it means to live, live in its shadow and uh, that's sort of the crisis of the book of the story but uh, the part I'm going to read takes place before that 
and sort of explains uh, how he got into AV in the first place. Jatinder and I both started doing AV back in the 10th grade. Started in the bar mitzvah circuit, learned the ropes, delighted in the late hours, the physicality, the camaraderie, the money, more than we could have made working at the food court or selling weed. Much, much more. Even though Ben Goldstein himself DJed my bar mitzvah, sweaty and fat and loud and booked two years in advance, it was Jatinder who first started third manning for him. Jatinder and his sister Kavita were the only brown people at our high school, though we'd been jokingly calling him an honorary Jew ever since he came over for his first Hanukkah when he were nine years old and lit the candles himself. He had been to as many bar, uh, bar and bat mitzvahs as any of us, and Goldstein quickly discovered that parents appreciated the color of his skin, making them feel good about the oodles of money they are spending to celebrate their sons and daughters' transition into Jewish adulthood. Jatinder, with the same ease he attracted girls and won sporting events, cultivated for himself the precise mixture of confidence, suaveness, and magnetism that was needed for Goldstein to invite you into his inner circle. By the time I third manned my first party, Jatinder had already graduated to DJ. I wasn't as smooth as Jatinder. I couldn't get an entire banquet hall of horny 13-year-olds, middle-aged Jews, and old-world grandparents sweating it out to the Macarena like he could. <laughs> But I was a good worker and learned fast, and within weeks I was working every Saturday night. <clears throat> our teenage lives revolved around Goldstein's warehouse. We spent our weekends there, dated the dancers, made our money throwing extravagant parties for the city's middle-class Jewish population. We learned how to light and drape a room, how to set up and manage basic sound, how to mix and DJ and MC, how to say yes to every request from the audience but to play none of them. <laughs> how to flirt with the mother of the bar mitzvah child just enough to get a cash tip at the end of the night. Goldstein acted like a king, and we treated him like one. He had a fleet of trucks, an enormous warehouse, a stable of DJs, a roster of dancers, an entire bureaucracy to put together the four or five weekly celebrations. I loved being a part of it, to belong to the nightly rhythm of swagger, music, schmooze, work, and drugs. After a few years, we barely noticed the children. When Goldstein, retired, <laughs> when Goldstein retired at the ripe old age of 47, his vast DJ empire was divided among his top lieutenants. Brian started Freefall Entertainment, Rick and Petrov founded Be Good Productions, and Olga, Goldstein's warehouse manager, an indeterminately aged Russian woman most of us were terrified of bought 70% of his gear and started renting it out to the newly formed companies. Word is that Goldstein still gets a cut of every dollar Brian, Rick, and Petrov bring in. Who knows? Gabe took over Goldstein's fledgling non-bar mitzvah business, the corporate parties, the weddings, the conferences. And Goldstein? Goldstein bought a mountain in Colorado, built a ski chalet, called his protégés once a week, ruled in absentia. After the shakeup and reforming, the whole business changed, and Jatinder and I became freelancers. We worked for all three of the new companies, our rate for each four-hour call higher than most, but by then we were the most experienced, the most trustworthy techs, truck drivers, schleppers, and DJs. Most of us my age who started in high school eventually moved on, university, travel, careers, family, but not us. We're still here, still living the life, still doing lights, sounds, visuals. A few years back, 
as the staff at Be Good and Free Fall kept getting younger and the bar mitzvahs became more and more extravagant, we started working almost exclusively for Gabe. What started as a way to make quick, insane money to buy weed in McDonald's has, without my noticing it, become my life. And until Jatinder blindsided me with the idea of starting our own company, I had barely given it a second thought. So that's that section. <laughs> and now I'm going to read a short uh, section from the novella that closes the, the collection, which is called uh, Chasing the Tonic. And uh, it's basically about following live jam band music across the country. But uh, all, all, you really <laughs> all you really need to know for this part is that the protagonist of the story, Jane, has uh, taken a break from following music after, uh, after Fish, which is a real jam band, broke up. And then she meets this boy named Ramil, who she sort of gets a crush on immediately, and they go to check out this new jam band, Grizzly. Uh, just a note, the Grateful Dead and Fish are two of probably the biggest jam bands, and so I mentioned them in here. Uh, Grizzly, the band they're about to see, that Jane's about to see for the first time, I made up. So uh, I made up the band, I made up the, their history, the songs, the set list, their jamming style. So uh, yeah, that was part of the challenge of writing this novella, I guess. Um, so Jane and Ramil are off to see Jane's first Grizzly concert. By the time they had entered the Bay Area and were driving through downtown Berkeley towards the university's campus, where they're seeing the concert. Jane felt like she knew Ramil intimately, and not only because they couldn't keep their hands off each other or their clothes on the second they were alone, or their clothes on the second they were alone. Ramil was full of theories, pronouncements, rants against the government, the police, the UN, the big corporations, anybody who had any power. He didn't believe in the nation state, in governments, in the army, in owning land. He kept saying that Babylon was erected on false promises and land theft, and that his days were numbered. What did he believe in? The open road, music, the night sky, that, as he put it more than once, music and dancing and the redistribution of wealth can change the world. He actually said that. Jane felt like she had finally met someone who had a handle on 21st century life. Like him, all she had to do was discard the bad parts, dig into the good parts, try and be a good person. She felt determined to do so with everything she had. They parked, easily scored tickets, waited in a long line that snaked right through campus to get into the venue, talked politics with a man with a sharp, intelligent face, wearing a red and gold jester's hat. Jane felt like she was home after a long absence. The Greek theater was a deep, small bowl situated halfway up the rising Berkeley campus. When Grizzly took the stage and, without any preamble, leapt into a raging, funked-out groove that seemed to have actualized out of the air, Jane was blown away. She closed her eyes and imagined the improvised chords and drum beats and piano washes and bass lines, filling the curved cement steps and narrow lawn of the amphitheater, detaching it from the campus, all of it lifting off into the night, trailing falling clumps of dirt and root as it drifted across the bay and out to sea. Grizzly, while right out of the dead fish current, was unlike any band Jane had ever heard. Their sound was raw, fresh, the jams driving relentlessly towards their crescendoing peaks before falling into folk-tinged valleys. By the fifth song, Jane had a sense of how to listen to them, the particular twists and changes that made their jams unique. There was a deep, playful intelligence behind the music, but also a driving, fierce musicality. Jane couldn't remember dancing like this before. 
She closed her eyes again and was a little girl being passed back and forth by her brothers at a dead show, floating above the crowds as lighters lit up the night, willing the band back on stage for the encore. The guitar is actually quite perfect right now. <laughs> Word quickly spread that Janice, the lead guitarist, tall and lanky with hands that dwarfed the neck of the guitar, had a nasty cold. Sure enough, when they came back on for the encore, the band played funky background music as Janice, head tilted back, shoulder length hair waterfalling towards the sage, poured an entire bottle of honey into his open mouth. Jane screamed encouragement along with everybody else. <laughs> Jane didn't know the names of any of the songs, not yet, but she felt new, alive, the show rolling around her brain, burning to be examined, dissected, opened up to have its magic shucked out. The scene was so much smaller and cleaner than a fish show. There didn't seem to be any hangers on, no one there just for the drugs and the party and the mistaken promise of free sex, everyone there simply for the music. Jane was wearing a, late, a light summer dress and had lost her sandals somewhere in the crowd. The keys player had her mesmerized. The bass player, who was to Jane's delight female, rocked out some serious rhythms. Janice's fingers burned with electricity. The drummer had not stopped smoking both cigarettes and on the drums since taking the stage. After the show and a lackluster after show party in downtown Berkeley with DJ Chris Carota, after wading through the rave-like scene of their hotel's lobby, after being in the elevator with Ramil for an electric rising moment interrupted when a very large man, obviously a fan, his enormous white t-shirt drenched in sweat, his cheeks red and his eyes popping, got on on the fifth floor and asked in a tone of heartbreaking intimacy, are you guys just getting back? After all that, but before stumbling off at the 10th floor and trying to determine which hallway led to the room they were sharing with six other people, Jane knew she was hooked. She couldn't wait to learn the names and histories of the band, revel in their mythology, memorize the shape and movement of their songs, the organic transformations, the hinted at melodies, the repetitions, a guitar line calling back a piano-led jam from three summers before, to be full of the knowledge that history is being made as you dance and welcome each new song with raised arms and ecstatic yelling to soak in the musical wonder, the serious heated discussions, to be re-immersed once again in the constant driving towards release, towards freedom, towards zenith after zenith, towards what everyone who had tasted it and understood called by a single word, tour. So, Ramil, she said, sliding into bed with him, none of the other roommates back from the celebrations yet, the hotel room theirs, where's the next show? Um, so that's the sections from the book. <laughs> Next time I read that section, I should bring a thing of honey and pour it on myself. <laughs> should I read a poem or two? Yes. No? Yes? <laughs> okay, a bit of a switch of uh, vibes here. Uh, so these are both prose poems. This last one was just published in the last edition of a Train Poetry Journal. It's called... Uh, Icelandic for not another poem about Iceland. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Icelandic for not another poem about Iceland. I will not mention the midnight sun. There will be no geysers amid steaming earth wounds, no allusions to the sagas, no glaciers melting into rivers, dropping into waterfalls, pooling into coastal plains, snuggling into our hearts. 
There will be no black sand. As a standard in the genre, there will be no Icelanders either. <laughs> so we luxuriated in porta-potty-hued waters. So we bathed in a piss-hot river in a steady downpour, halfway between sleep and bliss. So we took to the farm-abutted roads with touristy malice. So we fucked on a volcano. So what? No one said the sweater was going to be easy. What we're left with? A yellow road sign with a city silhouette crossed out in definitive red. A gift shop gif of a volcanic island denuded of 99% of its trees, bursting with invasive purple carpets of arctic lupine. Sulfur burps and scorched saving accounts. Neon yellow bananas bred in Colombia, bought in a grocery store in Grindavik, ripened on guesthouse windowsills but never eaten flown back to Toronto in a plane named after the volcano that one eon or another will smother us out of existence, baked into muffins laced with chocolate chips and walnuts, eaten by a lake two hours north of the city that, despite everything, most certainly remembers. <clears throat> Thanks. Uh, I'll end with this poem. It's also a prose poem. I write a lot of prose poems. Uh, this is the newest poem I've written, I guess. <laughs> and it's uh, quite sadly quite topical. It's called Everywhere Crimes. Uh, thanks for coming out and listening. Everywhere Crimes. Let's fire up our favorite streaming service and watch the newest reality show, you know, the one about war criminals who make late in life career moves, the charismatic general who takes up dog walking, the founder of Monsanto, who starts leading wilderness river trips, cries at every splendiferous sunset. The infamous butcher, the infamous butcher who runs a vegan fast foodery called Dehumanize This. <laughs> the show, naturally, is a runaway hit because to get down to brass tacks, brass tacks happening to be one of the butcher's preferred methods of torture, aren't war criminals the closest we have to communal myth? isn't everywhere you look, crimes. And so we love war criminals like we love our accountants. True, yes, war criminals do horrible things. They go to war against other war criminals. They commit war crimes, because otherwise, what are they doing with such a potent nom de guerre? But they speak our language. They eat our food. There are war criminals. They kiss babies. They plant trees. They have deep, intelligent voices. Our best radio hosts interview the war criminals, say things like, and through all that, you still manage to neutralize your targets. On evening news shows and Twitter feeds, up and coming war criminals gregariously pardon older, sort of disgraced, but not nearly disgraced enough war criminals. With all this focus on war criminals, it's easy to miss your neighbor's crimes, your daughter's, your arborists, yours. You turn off the television. You turn off your phone. You move to turn off the radio, but then, to your surprise, the radio host introduces a granddaughter of the dispossessed who responds at length to the claims of the war criminal. Her words a flower in the bombed out rubble, blooming into a river, into a library, into a courthouse, into a city you thought could exist only in dream. Maybe there is hope after all, you think the long-forgotten crime of hope. Thank you.
big thank you once again to all the lovely folks because we're gonna end with more lovely words in our ears. Nazba Tom is a queer Diné. They believe we are always moving towards healing and their work supports that process using somatic theory, practice, and hands-on body work. As a writer, their work focuses on poetry, prose, and film. They are a part of a few anthologies and online journals, and they do their best to capture poems and stories haunting them at all hours of the day. Can confirm. As a guest on this land in Toronto, their goal is to continue to build community and power with local indigenous folks who have taken care of this land for thousands of years. Please welcome Nazba Tom to the mic. Shorty, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me tonight. Um, oh, it's so cold. Uh, <laughs> it's keeping me awake though, so that's good. Um, so thanks for inviting me out and just having me as a part of uh, the lineup of folks here. <clears throat> um, and then also just thanks to my wife for supporting my writing and recommending me to Kinesia to put me here, so thank you. Um, so I have uh, two uh, uh, poems, I'm so cold, um, and a short story, <laughs> so hopefully I'll warm up. Um, the first one is from an anthology called Passage in Place, um, put together by uh, Anna Anti-Palindrome and Lex Non Scripta out of the Bay Area. So I moved from there to here for love. <laughs> um, yeah, my wife lives here. She was born and raised here. It's called uh, Passage in Place, Displacement and Movement, Freedom and Incarceration, Home and Immigration at the Intersection of Queerness. So I submitted a piece here. And it's entitled uh, Undergrowth. <clears throat> my sister sent me a photo of our childhood home up in flames. Piles of rotted wood burning un under the desert sky. I wish I had been there to gather the wood, to light the match, to say goodbye. Later that week, I went to therapy and told my therapist about this wish of my younger self. I talked about how my father built both the wooden frame of our house and my legs. He built both with what he knew, but houses and young children need different things. A hammer cannot take the place of hands. And I found as I talked, I was my own tinder, that my heart was a book of match after match after match after match of sorrow, anger, rage. My limbs, long seasoned in the winters on the res, slowly caught fire. The natives of this land that I live on now knew the importance of fire to maintain the health of the forest. They knew about controlled burns, not the hungry incinerators that elder redwoods would come to know, but about the tender touch of many hands clearing out undergrowth. My father was a coal miner, hands long stained by the dusty coal he brought home to warm our house. I think of how coal is the liver of our mother and how liver holds anger and how we inhale that anger in the deepest nights of winter. 
angry children, angry mothers, angry fathers. I looked at that photo and saw for the first time how small the house I grew up in was. My small limbs remembered something bigger. My father did the best with what he knew. Anger suppressed, walked our ancestors home long ago from Huelte. I know that now. And now that I am coming home, once again, I will light this matchbook of sorrow across the rough bark of my pinion pine chest and warm my grandchildren by this fire. Thank you. Okay, so the next one is from an anthology called Turtle Island to Abi Ayala. Um, it's a love anthology of art and poetry by Native American and Latina women. Uh, it came out in 2011, I think. Uh, a friend of mine, Mika, put it together, so a bunch of friends are in this. Um, and in this piece, it's called Masansan, so in my language, Dine, um, Masana means grandma, and then Masansan means great-grandmother, so you just add a son to each great, yeah. And it's about um, planting corn, <laughs> and I was three, so I couldn't do it, so anyway, <laughs> that's what I remember. I remember rows and rows of corn, the intense afternoon heat, our truck rumbling back and forth from the well to the cornfield, sprinkling a trail of water on the dusty dirt road. Great-grandma and her squished eyes, these are the memories of a three-year-old great-granddaughter, a geography of lines on her face, pale moon fingernails embedded in graceful brown fingers, wrinkled palms softened with age, cupping our round faces, resting heavily on our foreheads. She would peer into our faces, noses touching and whisper our names throughout the Hogan. Chubby girl, ah, her hair is so black. Soft words barely audible with our names on her wrinkled mouth. She had a name for each of us in Navajo. Grandparents laughing into their soup. Mother dips tortillas in soup, blows to cool the tortilla before putting it into my mouth, sopping with the memory of past plantings and harvests. My mother would remark many years later when I asked about Masansan, she loved children. I am three years old, not old enough to help with the planting, it is too hot, and no one can look after me in the open field. Father says there are dangerous snakes, and I like to eat bugs. Great-grandma lets me sit beneath the sink after the others have left for the cornfield. We play hide-and-seek. Where's Bada? I don't see her. I giggle from behind the white metal door beneath her sink. She opens every other door except for the one I'm hiding behind. I throw open the door and announce myself, My son, son, boo! Yeah, she says in feigned surprise, laughing. She holds her hand to her mouth, disguising her teeth. I am lulled to sleep by the drumming of cool water dripping into a metal pan beneath the cool sink. I wake up on the bed next to my son, son. I feel safe near her warm body. Her soft voice talks me back to sleep. Sleep, my little one, sleep. 
My face nestles into her soft chest, the smell of wood smoke, Vicks, and coffee. She wears a worn velvet shirt. Her skirt fans out across the bed. Great grandma, Masan Sun, with her moon fingernails shimmering in the dark of the small hogan, squished face pressed under the weight of laughter. We fall asleep and dream of roasted corn fresh off of the grill over crackling hungry juniper flames, reaching, licking kernels, popping and hissing sweet memory. Thank you. Um, so the last one is called Hand Trembler. Um, so my great-grandma Ada um, lived to be 104. So I have about 66 more years before I outlive her. So <laughs> quite a feat. And then my grandma, who this piece is about, lived to be 100. So um, hopefully I have those same genes. Um, anyway, my grandma also um, was a medicine person. Um, and I happened upon like a day um, with her where I spent the afternoon with her um, and she also had some visitors who were seeking some help from her too. Um, so I'll read up to right before the people show up. So it's called The Hand Trembler. Um, and then this is like my foray into short story writing which is a newer, <laughs> a newer uh, um, venture of mine. I saw my grandma waving at me from her front door as I rode my bike toward her house, this blue Lego block amongst red soil and muted green sagebrush. You have a fast horse there, she said smiling, her crow's feet and laugh lines as weathered as a doorframe she leaned on. One of her many dogs were lying in the shade of the blue house, its brown head resting on an old bone. One of grandpa's horses dipped their neck deep in their water trough in the pen near the house, its coat slick and shiny underneath the warming sun. I'm making some blood sausage. Can you help? Yeah, what do you need me to do? I leaned my horse against the front porch and walked inside after her, the screen door creaking shut behind me. She sauntered in slowly, her feet shuffling along the linoleum as she used the furniture in the living room for support, like a sloth slowly making her way from branch to branch. She was slow enough that I could measure my progress and height. I was almost as tall as Grandma, partly because of my growing and partly because of her hunched back. I confirmed I was up to her shoulder now, the same shoulder I used to bunch my little toddler hands around, clasping a similar velvet shirt, Grandpa's cotton shirt in my other hand, standing between them in their gray pickup truck on our drives to the trading post, a res seatbelt. <laughs> on the round kitchen table was a bowl of coagulated blood, some potatoes, a small bag of, of ground blue corn, salt, pepper, a stick, and a small bowl of call fat. Cut these up for me, will you? She gestured with her hand toward the potatoes. I did as I was told. Grandma turned the radio on. It was always tuned to KTNN 660, the voice of the Navajo Nation. <laughs> it crackled with static. George Strait singing out about oceanfront property in Arizona. Then the radio announcer gave us a rundown of the weather. Rain is in the forecast for our area today, folks. 
From where I was cutting potatoes, I could see out of Grandma's kitchen window, north towards Navajo Mountain, a cloud beginning to form at its top, like a cotton ball on its tip. I knew it would be a while before that little cotton ball would become a flock of sheep moving slowly across the sky. I wished to myself that the clouds would darken and push out rain in long strands like Grandma's long hair along the valley floor. That day, like many days, Grandma had her hair in her usual bun and sat in her usual chair near the window, tearing the call fat into pieces with her fingers. The bowl of call fat sat against her faded blue, scotton, blue cotton skirt and worn velvet shirt with a small turquoise pin. If I was allowed to make prolonged eye contact with my grandparents, I would have let my eyes follow the tributaries of Grandma's wrinkles all over her soft face. I would have <coughs> gotten lost in the canyons of their laugh lines like my cousins and I did in the arroyo behind Grandma's house. Instead, I kept cutting the potatoes and observed them discreetly from afar. Together, we created the sausage filling. Together, we mashed up the blood. Together, we added the blue corn, the call fat, the potatoes. Together, we stuffed the sheep's stomach with the blood filling, cinched the sausage with a strip of bluebird flour bag, boiled the sausage. My stomach growled in anticipation, and Grandma smiled. I'll make us a cheese sandwich once we get this done, okay? Once the sausages began boiling, she prepared us a snack. Two pieces of tortilla she had made that morning for Grandpa's breakfast before he went out on horseback looking for cattle along the mesa. Half a block of commodity cheese from this month's allotment given out at the chapter house. I sat down at the table on Grandpa's chair to devour my snack. It wasn't a chair so much as it was a metal crate with a thin cushion on top. It was Grandpa's chair where he sat every meal with his thin straight back and legs crossed, and Grandma in her softer and wider chair where she sat with his slightly hunched back. I like to think of them as an exclamation and question mark sitting next to each other. Now, <clears throat> I proudly sat there, a comma between the phrases of generations. Do you want some coffee? Grandma asked mischievously, knowing my mom never let me drink it. I nodded eagerly. We sat eating our sandwiches, listening to George Jones on KTNN radio, singing about who's going to fill their shoes. I glanced at Grandma occasionally, wondering who would fill her shoes. As I sat contemplating this, Grandma helped me with a crossword puzzle, showing me where words were on the, sh on the sheet. For C, I circled the word with a stubby pencil. Mystery. I like that word. Mystery, I said softly, mouthing the words. That's when I noticed Grandma distractedly wiping a crumb off her chest while looking far off into the distance. We're going to have visitors today, she said. And I looked at her inquisitively and confused. I just know. A few hours passed watching clouds from over the mountain and watching Grandma sitting in her chair and spinning wool on her spindle dancing on the linoleum floor. The barking dogs alerted me to a, a car driving towards the house. Grandma, someone is coming. Thank you. For more information on the Pivot Readings, go to pivotreadings.ca.